be a specialist in everything, and you can't. Most of us in practice in primary care or elsewhere find the things that really speak to us, and we. Um, I think the biggest shock to me when I got out of residency and started my practice um, was, oh, there's there's still more stuff I have to learn. In fact, you know, really all you get is is the basics. You you uh, you know, you're drinking from that fire hose all throughout medical school and residency, and you think enough. I am so done learning, and but you're not done. You're never done. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore the world of primary care by featuring discussions with a variety of healthcare providers. And now, the host of the show, Dr. Ross Tannock. Hey everybody, it is mid-July, so... Everybody, please wish a happy birthday to my amazing wife. You can do so out loud right now. If you are keeping score at home, I am about half a month into residency and I am still alive. Pleased about that. And that's really all I have to report on. I have found it fun and exciting and certainly interesting being a real live resident physician. And I promise to keep you posted on uh, all the things going on in my world. And I've actually been on a urology rotation. The topic today is kind of a reciprocal topic in medicine. This episode is with Dr. Gretchen Fry. And we talk about gynecology, hormone therapy, both in the context of menopause and the context of gender affirming healthcare. We also talk about sexual pain disorders such as vulvodynia, dyspareunia, and vaginismus. She is on the show also to discuss and promote her latest project, An Introduction to Sexuality Education, a Handbook for Primary Care Providers. Uh, It's a great uh, resource, and she gave me a draft. I think it's a super cool resource for the primary care provider or any really any provider who wants to know more about sexuality and how that relates to the healthcare that they provide and it's a super non-intimidating uh, look into that world she said it will be available mid-july which it is right now on a website called unhushed.org u-n-h-u-s-h-e-d.org She is just a wealth of knowledge and has decades of experience. Um, She's no longer in clinical practice, but you can find out more about her and connect with her on her website, GretchenFryMD.com, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, let me do a quick live read from one of our new sponsors. I think it's a fitting one for this episode. Are you looking for a sketch and improv comedy troupe that exclusively performs scenes about hormone replacement therapy? Well, look no further than The Progesters. What's in a name? Well, The Progesters tell you what they are all about up front. They are there to make you laugh, professionally of course, and do so in a comedic environment limited to jokes and scenarios involving hormone replacement therapy only. They're on tour right now in the contiguous 48, and they're coming to a city near you. 
One Google review from a happy performance goer stated, I laughed so hard, I got hot flashes. Another reviewer wrote, Their energy and humor was steady for most of the show, but then rose up and spiked just before the end of the performance. Wow. With testimonials like these, I don't think you can go wrong. So please visit theprojesters.com slash tour for a list of cities on their tour and to purchase tickets. And if you insert the promo code PCP, you might get charged less, but it's hard to say. Go to theprojesters.com slash tour for more info. All right, let's get to the episode. Dr. Fry was awesome. She went to the University of Colorado for medical school and stayed there for a residency in OBGYN. In this talk, she drops a ton of clinical pearls for us and just awesome knowledge from her years of experience with things that PCPs will certainly see. Hey, one thing that Dr. Fry emailed me about after the recording is that we kind of forgot to discuss the topic of topical vaginal estrogen, uh, such as estrase cream, or Dr. Fry likes to use Imvexi vaginal suppositories. And she wanted me to add just a, a couple of things about this type of medication just for completeness here at the top of the show. Uh, she says, these are extremely low dose and they have no real health risks other than in someone with hormone dependent cancer. They don't need a progesterone prescribed along with them and they can be used indefinitely. The reason to use them is for, is for urogenital atrophy which can lead to vaginal dryness, tightness, painful intercourse, and often urinary difficulties. And actually, uh, all of those I have seen quite a bit during my uh, OBGYN and family medicine rotations in medical school. Uh, this urogenital syndrome, sorry, uh, this genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM, is pretty common among women who choose not to take hormone replacement. And it's one of those few things that does not get better with time like so many of the other symptoms like hot flashes do get better with time anyway she goes on i find my patients and even many primary care providers are not aware of this remedy or if they are aware that they think that there's some uh carries the same systemic risks as hormone replacement in a systemic fashion which it does not and it can be so very helpful all right so that was good information. I'm glad we got that out of the way so we can get to all the rest of the episode. So listen up and please enjoy my talk with Dr. Gretchen Fry. So I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, uh, far from Colorado land. Colorado was this place that people came from but that nobody actually lived and when you saw a Colorado license plate on a parked car in the street everyone would sort of gather around it in reverent fashion wow. and uh, and hope to glimpse the, those you know, people that were belonged to the car uh, so we would come out here on vacations when I was a kid and eventually my dad just succumbed and, and we all moved out here so um, but I always loved uh, science as a kid loved nature as a kid I was not one of those squeamish girls the the boys used to throw worms on us on the playground, and I would I would grab the worm and take a look at it, and you know see if I could determine anything about it. So, nice, cool. Um, so a true scientist. Yeah, apparently. So, uh, and I 
have, we have family stories that I liked to play nurse when I was little, like four or five years old. And then as I um, got more into love of animals and horses in particular, I thought, no, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And so that, that persisted all the way through high school and my selection of college. We were in Colorado by now, and um, I went to Colorado State because they have an excellent vet school. And then um, there was this kind of reality check major moment where um, I got to watch the vet uh, do some work with some large animals out on our little piece of land, and I realized this could be a physically brutal, punishing job, <laughs> and I am not a big person. Uh, and so then I was kind of bummed because I thought, well, maybe I can't be a horse vet after all. And um, and then a peer of mine said, well, you know, what about medicine? And all it, it was like this, you know, light bulb went on. So I thought, oh, yeah. And then I thought, I'll do OB <laughs> because the whole pregnancy conception thing is so fascinating. Uh, but I'll admit that when I got to med school at University of Colorado that uh, I almost went into family medicine because I love the whole cradle to grave. I love the holistic approach where you're looking at someone's whole life and the whole picture and not just focusing on, you know, part of an earlobe or something. Right, um, yeah. But I ended up in OB in the end because I really love doing surgery. I've, I've always loved doing things with my hands, uh, whether you know it was sewing or it was playing music or it was different kinds of skills. And I love that skill aspect of surgery. Uh, and I love the fact that there was a fair amount of well adult care. I knew I didn't just want to see hopelessly sick people. Um, and there was deliveries, which are awesome and incomparable and you know just so cool. Right. So, um, and especially these days, but even back then, more than 30 years ago, OBGYN was one of the very few specialties where you could have a, a pretty thriving office practice, but you also did a lot of work in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And when your patients went to the hospital, you, you followed them there and you made rounds on them and saw them in the hospital and then you saw them back in the office. And that, that used to be the case with internal medicine and uh, to a lesser degree with family practice and so on. Uh, but it, it it pretty much just is not the case at all anymore. There's, mm -hmm. There are hospitalists and then there are office folks. So right. it still bridges that gap, which I, I liked. It was fun. Yeah, that is cool. A, a couple of things jump out to me about your background. You were talking about the physical demands of being in the veterinary world. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that you still picked a specialty that was kind of physically demanding and just yeah. demanding for the schedule um, and for the surgical, all the reasons that surgery is demanding, mm -hmm. um, the childbirth yeah. is demanding. Um, it's, uh, but you found a way to be in medicine to satisfy the things that you wanted to do in life, yeah. uh, and make it demanding enough, but something that you could handle and something that worked for you. Yeah. I mean, it really was doing the passion. I mean, I loved every minute of it. There wasn't any part of it I didn't like. You do eventually wear out that demanding schedule. I mean, it's so ridiculous. I was never a, a person, even as a young person, who could stay up and party all night. And here I picked a specialty where I was off and up a good part of the night. Right. And you just you just kind of learn to function after a while. You're never 100%, even after a weekend off. You might be 80%. But um, So that does wear you down after a while. Uh, and that's part of the decision to stop OB, which everyone does at some point. Mm -hmm. And uh, other parts of my decision were the feeling that... Um, uh, you know, you have to be an adrenaline junkie to be an OB. It's like being an ER doc or, or, or probably a general surgeon to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, you have to really feel like you're you're up for it. You know, that crash C-section or that postpartum hemorrhage or something where everybody in the room is looking at you and bad things are potentially going to happen if you don't act quickly. <laughs> right. And after a while, I think, you know, somewhere into my third decade of practice that 
that adrenaline high just kind of wasn't there anymore. <laughs> you know, and I was just thinking, by then you know all the things that can go wrong because a few of them have happened to you, and it's it's less fun and more worry. Right. And uh, that's when I thought, well, it's probably time to hand it over to the younger folks and, and go and do office GYN. And, and I also had a couple teenagers still at home, and it was my observation that they need you a lot when they're tiny in a certain way, but they need you in a different way when they're older, and they need you to be your adult self and be around a little more. Yeah. So a number of things had me make that transition um, about 10, 12 years before I finished practice altogether. Wow. Um, yeah, you're, you're definitely right. That rings true to me and just about everything you said. Um, what was uh, the office GYN um, part of your career like? Like, I want to know kind of what things that were the most common, maybe three or five most common things that you're seeing and, and, yeah. um, and how are you approaching those bread and butter GYN uh, issues. Right. So a lot of my patients followed me when I just, I transitioned to a different practice at that point to do office only. And it was a really fun practice because it was, it was all office based, but it was multi-specialty and it was a holistic approach. So we had internal medicine, we had an acupuncturist there, we had a physical therapist there, uh, we had a, a chiropractor and a, a couple other folks. So, um, Many of my patients followed me. By then, they were done with the OB part of their lives. So lots of annual exams, mm-hmm. um, lots of seeing abnormal paps that were referred by family docs and others, um, lots of lots of menopause that became one of my big specialties over the years. We tend to age along with our patients, and so um, as they got older and I get older, got older, it became more of a thing. And uh, out of all that work with hormone replacement. Uh, Towards the last few years of my practice came a desire to get into doing transgender hormone therapy, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little more in a bit. There's a great need in the Denver community. Uh, And a couple other orphan things that I really wanted to have more time to address that are hard to address in a busy practice, and those were basically the sexual pain syndromes like vulvodynia and dyspareunia and vaginismus, mm-hmm. um, all of which things are, you know, make most docs want to just turn around and run for the hills because right. they're not only um, awkward and scary, but, hard, you know, hard, what do you do with them? Yeah. And, uh, so I set about kind of making some learning opportunities for myself to figure out how to handle some of those those conditions. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that's a good uh, way to get into the kind of hormone therapy um, side of your job. Uh, because you said that you were just kind of having a lot of patients that were going through menopause and that were having hormonal changes mm-hmm. going on. Um, and that was kind of how you, um, I guess, um, accelerated your practice in that way or, or um, right there was a need yeah <laughs> my patients were you had a lot need. of those patients yeah right so. Uh, so yeah tell tell us how that works meaning how did people present and what would um i guess the reason i'm asking is because there's a lot of overlap between what the pcp sees and what a gyn will see um and so the same patient that might come to you would also come to a, a family practice or, a, you know, um, internal Ab- med. Absolutely. could Because, uh, I mean, most a lot of my patients relied on me for their primary care. Mm-hmm. And I drew the line at prescribing things like blood pressure meds and statins just because I didn't care to try to stay up on all of the literature. But, um, you know, conversely, uh, lots of 
lots of primary cares are going to encounter with menopause. And the, the biggest message I want to impart today is to try to remove at least some of the fear around hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. because there's a lot of fear out there. And I remember the day in 2002 when the Women's Health Initiative broke, and it, it wasn't reported in a normal fashion through normal scientific channels. One of the investigators went to the press, and it became a sensational headline event. And it's really been misunderstood ever since, even among a whole lot of the medical community. Uh, so, you know, someone would present, so we'll, so we'll get to that data in a minute, but mm-hmm. um, someone would present typically typically a woman in her mid-40s to mid-50s uh, would come in with um, three or four of the, the standard things. I'm having really regular periods. Um, I'm having hot flashes or night sweats. I'm not sleeping well. Um, my brain is foggy. I, I can't, my cognition isn't great. Um, my moods are all over the place. And sometimes if they were on the young end, um, you know, they would be told, oh, this is, you know, nothing hormonal. You can't, can't be, you're too young for this. Mm-hmm. But in fact, perimenopause can start in the late thirties. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a mushy term because it just means anybody who's, <coughs> who's no longer in the regular period phase, if presuming they ever were, uh, but they're not yet done with periods. So mm-hmm. um, they would present with these things and we'd have a discussion about, you know, well, their menopause treatment is kind of a pyramid. You can start with lifestyle measures. You can go to nutrition, supplements, herbs, and kind of the top of the pyramid is uh, is hormones. And so many of them would have already tried a lot of the, the lifestyle remedies. Uh, some, some hadn't. And so we'd talk about self-care and things you could do for the specific symptoms. Uh, but for those who either already weren't having luck with that or who wanted to go straight to hormones because, let's say, they were having trouble functioning at work, you know, they've, they've got a high-level executive job, and they'd say, I need 100% of my brain, and I need it now, mm-hmm. you know, or I need to sleep, uh, or I can't function. Then we would start on some hormone replacement. And um, I always thought it was good to do, I'm going to use a term that's controversial, and then I'll explain it, to do bioidentical hormones. Mm-hmm. And by bioidentical, I do not mean custom-made in a compounding pharmacy necessarily. That's one way to get them. But what I mean is let's replace what's missing and not a synthetic version thereof. So... I, I would prescribe estradiol and progesterone. Uh, so estradiol, my favorite method over the years, became the patch because it's the most physiologic. It gives a pretty steady blood level. There are multiple doses you can prescribe, and you can even cut the patches if you need to somehow fine-tune in between right. doses. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, with that steady level, you tend to get less fluctuations. And the, it's the fluctuations in hormone levels that are causing all the symptoms in the first place. Okay. So if you can level them out a bit, that really helps. And then micronized progesterone oral was my favorite progestin just because one reason is because in the Women's Health Initiative study, that increased risk of breast cancer that was seen was with a Premarin and Provera regimen. And that same increased risk has been seen with other synthetic progestins, um, for example, in the E3N cohort study out of France, and that was in 08, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't necessarily been seen with progesterone itself, and it hasn't been seen at all with, with just estrogen. So it again, the scientist in me wants to replace what's missing and not use a synthetic if we don't have to. Uh, and then micronized progesterone has the other lovely side effect that it usually makes most people drowsy if taken at bedtime, and lack of sleep is a huge complaint right. in okay. perimenopause. So that was my Two most... Two birds, one stone. Yeah, right. So that's been my most common regimen. It's something I don't do and learned was was really not worth doing was check blood levels. It, it's the most natural thing in the world. The patients want them checked. Most docs feel like they've got to check. 
but you don't get much information from a blood level. If you've got a 28-year-old who's having hot flashes and night sweats and irregular periods, you better check out an FSH because you know that that's really unusual. Yeah. If you've got a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old who's having that, it's it's perimenopause. Right. And the and checking the blood level is problematic because for three, four, five, up to seven years or so, the FSH, the estrogen, the progesterone are all all over the place. They could be you know in one spot today and one another spot even later today. Right. So by you, nature they fluctuate. By anyway. nature they fluctuate, and that's why all the symptoms are happening. And they, by nature they fluctuate cyclically throughout the month anyway. Right. But you know you're not you're not going to diagnose menopause on a blood test except in an unusual situation or maybe mm-hmm. somebody doesn't have a uterus to give signals um, but sometimes women will get a blood test in that situation on that day it'll happen to have a big surge of estrogen it'll measure nice and high their fsh will be low and the doc will say good news this is not menopause well then what are they going to do because <laughs> right. it is menopause yeah you know? right so <laughs> and then there's also no goal blood level unless you're kind of from the optimal aging camp where where docs like to replace all of the endocrine hormones to youthful levels indefinitely. And, and I never followed that philosophy. So there's, there's no goal level of estrogen that makes people feel good. There's no goal level beyond which it's dangerous or below which it's okay. So there's really not a lot of point in checking levels. Unless you've given your, your prescriptions, they should be getting relief. They're not getting relief. Then you need to find out, is this stuff even getting into them? Mm-hmm. And then, then it might be useful to check a level, and I would do it in that situation. And then there's kind of a special case for testosterone, which is a, maybe a little side path we may or may not want to go down. Um, I do want to h- talk about that uh, in okay. just a moment. I want to talk a little bit about what um, are the other effects of hormone therapy, uh, especially in this kind of scenario or this population. Um, and I also don't want to forget to talk about um, some of the bottom of the pyramid kind of lifestyle factors that you sure. alluded to earlier and kind of the other first line right. uh, therapies or strategies. Yeah. Um, so however we want to attack that, maybe let's talk about, let's stay on estrogen and, okay. and uh, hormone replacement. Um, so yeah, what, what can you expect? Let's say you're, you're overdoing it with uh, too high a dose of these medications or these uh, hormones. If you're given too much estrogen, you're going to get persistent breast tenderness and probably uh, weight gain, maybe five pounds, usually not dramatic weight gain, mm-hmm. uh, and general feelings of being bloated or uh, water retention, like you know, my rings are tight, my fingers are fat, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's your clue. But the breast tenderness is, is one of the best indicators clinically, I think. Okay. And, you know, if you're not given enough, your symptoms you're trying to treat are probably going to persist. The other thing that estrogen can do is aggravate bleeding. So that's where there, there is no precise recipe, but folks are already having irregular bleeding because of the swings of estrogen and the sometimes ovulation and progesterone production, sometimes not. If you give too much estrogen, you're going to generally increase bleeding overall. And if you can balance it with the right amount of progesterone, you'll minimize that, but it's it's not guaranteed. If you're, if you're having a lot of bleeding problems, you either need to go to a synthetic option like an oral contraceptive if they're young enough and healthy enough, mm. or you can consider a Mirena IUD, which is fabulous for controlling the bleeding, protecting the endometrium, and then you can do what you like with your oral progesterone for symptoms, and you don't have to worry about it having an impact on the bleeding. So okay. that's still an off-label use, but it's being uh, studied and reported more and more. Uh, the Mirena IUD, and it was one of my favorite ways to control uh, irregular bleeding in mm-hmm. the perimenopause, you know, once you've made sure there's no no pathology there. Mm-hmm. And so you would 
used a progesterone IUD and yeah. oral progesterone? Um, the oral progesterone became optional at that point. Some women like it for sleep and mood help because it can be kind of an anti-anxiety, anti-irritability effect, which is lovely. Uh, and others seem to not need it. If they got their estrogen, then that was all they needed. But then you're protecting the endometrium. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, on that note, you talked about protecting the endometrium. What happens when you don't protect the endometrium? And, and uh, maybe this will be a good uh, transition into some of the risks um, yes. uh, that you met. I think you alluded to earlier when you're talking about um, that study. Yeah. So if you don't protect the endometrium, it's been known now for 50 years or more that you'll uh, have an increased risk of and endometrial cancer, of uterine lining cancer. That's if you give unopposed estrogen. Mm-hmm. Do we know what what that risk is or on what magnitude that we're talking about? I don't about? know. I'm sorry. I don't have that number. That's, 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 that's okay. kind of That was kind of you know established knowledge before I started practice. So. No, that's okay. That's, that's uh, kind but, of academic. But, you know, and it's not, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen people mistakenly pres- be prescribed unopposed estrogen or, you know, decide on their own not to take their progestin. It's not a high risk, and it does usually take several years to for the hyperplasia to build up and then progresses through atypia and then to cancer. So it's not immediate, but... Probably the biggest risk we should talk about with the WHI is that is that one that's always in the front of patients' minds, and that's the breast cancer risk. So what the Women's Health Initiative study showed in that headline in 2002 was that their, their group that was taking 2.5 milligram Provera and um, it was three, it was the lowest dose of Primum, 0.625, I believe. Okay. Um, they, they took that regimen... Uh, all of them uh, for five years. And at the end of five years, they saw more breast cancers than they expected. The population rate for this age group would have been 30 breast cancers in that period. Mm-hmm. And instead, they saw 38. Well, that, a 10,000 women study group, they had eight additional cancers. That's not a very scary number. Yeah. But hang on, if you look at the relative risk, Oh, 30 to 38, that's a 27% increase. So that's a relative risk of 1.27. So there's your headline. Hormones cause 27% increase in breast cancer. Right. Absolutely true. Very misleading because it's a 27% increase in a really small number. Right. And to put it in perspective, if you're overweight, like most of us in the U.S. are, or Mm -hmm. at least in the age of menopause, I'll tell you that's another part of it. (laughs) Sure. Um, If you're overweight, um, the the relative risk of breast cancer ranges from 1.2 to 1.6. And if you like a glass of wine or two with dinner, if you like two, then your relative risk is 1.2. So that, that kind of puts it in perspective. It's not a huge increase in risk, and it's only after five years. And it was only with a combination, estrogen-progestin. The other 10,000-woman arm that was taking only the Premarin, only the conjugated equine estrogens, because they'd had hysterectomies, had zero increase in breast cancer, in fact had a decrease Hmm. which was not statistically significant, but in the follow-up studies, it did reach significance, and it persists to this day. The latest follow-up was published in 2020 in JAMA, and there's still a decreased incidence of breast cancer in the estrogen-only arm. So that's pretty fascinating and makes me think, again, as a scientist, this isn't estrogen. I mean, it's it's the progestin or it's the combination. Right. So that's yes. real important to know when you're thinking about risk and counseling patients about risk. The other risks have to do with uh, with blood clots, with uh, stroke or pulmonary embolus. Mm -hmm. And that was a similar kind of a uh, relative risk of 1.1 to 1.3 in the different groups. Uh, And that actually, you can completely avoid that risk by giving the transdermal estrogen. There's been suspicion for a couple of decades, and now there are some some decent studies coming out. uh, The journal Menopause, the North American Menopause Society, uh, 
publishes it, they just came out with a statement that um, on a Swedish study that, that did a prospective randomized controlled trial and showed that the transdermal estrogen, like the patches, had uh, showed no increased incidence of VTE uh, of any okay. kind. Yeah. So we've, we've suspected that for a while. We're, we're starting to get good evidence. Okay. So, again, uh, safer way to give it. Yeah, I know there's also... Yeah, um, Take a sip of water, please, because <laughs> you're uh, giving us a, a lot of good information here, um, and I want to keep it going. Uh, what do we know about the cardiac uh, effects of hormone therapy? Well, the, the whole reason for the WHI was actually to see if uh, hormone therapy would, would be good primary prevention for cardiac disease. And it turns out not to be, at least in older women, and most of the women in that study were over 60. But for the group that was 50 to 59, it was actually cardioprotective. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this has led to something called the timing hypothesis, the idea that if you take your estrogen early enough, it actually has beneficial effects on your cardiovascular risk. And that's important clinically because most women coming in to start hormone replacement are not over 60. They're, they're definitely in the 50 to 59 or younger range. Right. And it turns out that even women who were menopausal but were less than 10 years from their menopause still had that cardioprotective benefit. So so that's a, a good benefit. And then mm -hmm. I'm sure most people are aware of the osteoporosis protection as well. You right. get less bone loss if you're replacing estrogen. Yeah. So if yeah. somebody is coming to you or, uh, or a primary care provider and they're saying, I think I'm going through menopause, here are my mm -hmm. symptoms, and mm -hmm. everybody agrees this is likely menopause. Um, you mentioned some of the lifestyle factors um, that you can start with before you start with hormone therapy if the patient wants. Right. Um, how do you go about uh, establishing those? Yeah, so some things that have been shown to benefit hot flashes, not at the time you're doing it, but later on, are like vigorous exercise. They, it usually aggravates hot flashes while you're exercising, but, <laughs> sure. it, but it can decrease them later on. Um, do we know what? Sorry. Uh, do we know do what we, the mechanism is? No. Well, I was going to say, don't. do we do we have um, a definition for vigorous exercise? Oh, aerobic exercise, just where you're getting your heart rate up into the, the aerobic okay. training range, let's say. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and various forms of relaxation are good. It, there's often a, a kind of a spike in anxiety around the time of perimenopause, and often it's new for patients, and it, and it really alarms them, mm -hmm. and that's, that's a bit hormonally related. In fact, uh, a number of patients presented over the years with palpitations, and, um, you know, they had a cardiac workup, couldn't find anything, but, it, but it's just the... Um, I think the mild anxiety with the hormones and then estrogen usually usually help that. Mm -hmm. But again, if we're doing lifestyle measures, anything that deals with stress reduction, whether it's mindfulness-based uh, meditation, um, it's yoga, it's um, journaling, it's anything that, that promotes self-care, reflection, um, it just just stress reduction of any kind is helpful with a lot of the emotional symptoms and um not, not as much with the hot flashes per se. Uh, a modality that can be helpful is acupuncture. So there, there's some decent data on acupuncture and relief of hot flashes. Hmm. It's really hard to design a randomized controlled study with acupuncture, right. so the data isn't robust, but it, plenty of anecdotal evidence, and that was one way I would usually direct folks if they wanted to try a non-medical, uh, non-medicine modality, yeah. it's Chinese medicine. And if you go to a a full-fledged Chinese medicine practitioner, they're also going to diagnose and prescribe particular herbs, you know, for, for your, um, for your needs. And then there are, of course, a lot of general herbs that can be used, black cohosh for hot flashes. You know, if there's depression, it, it makes sense to try St. John's wort and uh, some of the other helpful 
known to be helpful herbs out there. So there's just a vast array of things you can do mm-hmm. uh, that, that may be helpful, uh, you know, worth trying. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have a patient who's kind of on the fence and is like, I don't know, you know, hormone therapy, I'm kind of scared of maybe the ad- ad- yeah. adverse effects of it. And maybe you calm them down with some of the counseling on the risk reduction or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just evaluating the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there ever a time, I guess, when you're, when you are more aggressive and so you need to, uh, be taking hormone replacement or otherwise the only time poor I outcomes? Would, the only time I would strongly recommend it would be for someone in premature menopause because it's, it's clear beyond the, any doubt that if you don't replace those hormones, um, if, if someone's menopausal, say in their mid-30s, mm-hmm. that you're going to have um, significant cardiovascular and bone uh, consequences. So I would, I would really strongly recommend it in that situation. Or perhaps somebody who was on the fence but had you know really bad bone density or, or uh, you know something else that I figured I felt would really benefit. But in general, I never wanted to try to talk anybody into anything. Occasionally, I would say to them, "Why don't you try it for six weeks? Mm-hmm. There's no possible risk in, with six weeks of use, and you'll know pretty quick if it's going to help you and how much." Okay. And then often, if it did help a lot, they would say. Oh yeah, okay. I want this. Right, <laughs> you know, sure. This is really making a difference. Or they might say, "Ah, oh, you know, I just don't feel right on it." But great question answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, how long are patients usually on it? Let's say they come to you at age fifty, and you prescribe it, and they try it for six weeks, and they like it. And um, you know, what's the the course from there? Yeah. So most of the bothersome symptoms of the of the menopause and the perimenopause are gonna going to take place within, I think I've said before, two to seven years, so probably three, four, five years. And five years is our study safety window there if you're going to prescribe combined therapy. So um, I would usually tell them, you know, plan to give yourself a, you know, at least a year of, of relative stability on this. And then, you know, once a year, let's try weaning down and see how you do. Um, you know, goal is for most is probably to, to wean off uh, after, you know, several years. And there were there were a subset though uh, that never did well off, and we would risk counsel every year. And um, I had many that stayed on just indefinitely. Uh, sometimes it was that executive function that would just go away every single time they tried to go off the estrogen. Sometimes it was mood that would tank when they would go off of it. Um, and others just said, you know, I, I like how I feel on this. I feel like myself. I want to stay on. And you know, so every year we'd have we'd have a review of the the risk data mm-hmm. and uh, do any monitoring that we needed to do. Okay. I think I have two more questions on this topic before okay. we uh, move along. I, okay. I wanted to hit the uh, testosterone uh, yeah. thing that you brought up earlier. Um, let, let's talk about that first. Cause it's kind of um, on this topic. Uh, what were yeah. you, uh, what do you have in mind about testosterone how to use it in this uh, type of context? Yeah, so you know, women are often surprised to learn that they have testosterone. We all make it. The ovaries make it um, predominantly, and um, it, it to some people it's real important to how they feel, to their sex drive, to their just sense of being attractive, and sometimes to mood can be important in being able to build muscle when you work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I never led with testosterone in a hormone replacement discussion because. Estrogen is it has the lion's share of influence on the symptoms. So, um, if a woman, you know, came in, we evaluate. She decided to try hormones. She liked her hormones. I this is something I would recommend. By the way, after starting hormones, I always had them schedule a follow up visit in usually six or eight weeks because 
it takes time to adjust. I want to make sure they were doing well and weren't unhappy. And then at the follow-up, or perhaps there might be one or two more follow-ups, if they said, you know, I'm, I'm mostly back, I'm sleeping, I'm thinking, but I don't know, there's just something missing. Um, and if it was along the lines of my sex drive's not there, which is another whole, you know, three-hour talk we could have about all the things that influence sex drive, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just not there, or I'm not reaching orgasm as easily as I used to, or I can't build muscle with my workouts, or... Um, you know, I have this mood disorder and we're, I'm pretty good on my antidepressants, but we just can't seem to get the last piece. Then I would, then I would do a blood level of testosterone because that one doesn't fluctuate. That's pretty steady. Mm-hmm. Um, and it steadily goes down with each year that we get older, men and women both. Yeah. Um, but that one's pretty steady. So I would check and if it was at the low end of normal, um, or below, uh, then I would say, you know, you might want to try testosterone. And a note about the testosterone assay is that LabCorp and others who, who do this assay, it was the most common assay, at least out there, was designed to measure testosterone in the male range. So mm-hmm. if you've spent any time in a research lab, you know that assays are not perfect throughout the whole range. And it, this one is not very good at the low range. So in the, in the female range of testosterone, I think LabCorp actually has zero as the lower limit of normal. Oh, great. It's something like <laughs> zero to 45. Yeah, so I would, I would just... I would just uh, suggest that zero is not normal for anybody, but um, but it's okay. not a great assay. So I used to uh, check a f- free testosterone, or there's you can also check a total testosterone and a sex hormone binding globulin SHBG level, and then you can go online and there's a, um, a little online if you just Google free and re- uh, free and bound testosterone calculator, I think you'll find a little software tool that is a, a really good approximation, maybe even better than the free testosterone. So nice. anyway, okay. check testosterone no, that's a good somehow. Pearl. That's a yeah, good pearl. right. Um, so check testosterone in some way. And uh, then if it was low, I'd say, let's, let's do a trial. And then I would, that's one time when I would use a compounding pharmacy only because, and you can, you can do this with FDA approved testosterone products for men. Um, but it's annoying because they're dosed about 10 times higher than what women need. Right. And so if you get, you know, test them or, you know, a little packet that's meant to be one day's use, what you end up doing is drawing it up into a little syringe and then, you know, making it a 10-day supply and, and dispensing one-tenth of it at a time topically and rubbing it into the wrists. And so you can do that. Or you can have find a compounding pharmacy that you can work with and like and feel good about their quality and they can prescribe it in an amount that's a little easier to administer. Um, testosterone's no good orally. It just gets digested, so it's got to be transdermal. Okay. Um, and then I would have them use that every day. And again, six to eight-week follow-up. It can take up to 12 weeks for your body to make new testosterone receptors. If there hasn't been testosterone around, the receptors kind of get tired of waiting and go away, and you have to build new ones. So with testosterone, I always cautioned it's going to take at least – eight weeks and more likely 12 to know what this is doing. Wow. And then that their follow-up, if they weren't feeling better, we would recheck the level. And and you need to recheck it, not immediately after they put that gel on, because it's going to be sky high, but ideally, you know, half a day later. So put it on the morning, check in the afternoon, or okay. check in the morning after putting it the night before. And that'll give you some reasonable idea of, you know, is this changing their level? And then, you know, we would see, we'd, we would take them up to a, a high normal female level, you know, at most, and if they felt no different, then I would say, you know, it's not, this is not the deal. You don't need this. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you right. know, it's not helping. Why, why bother? Right. But I would say about one in four who, you know, presented with some questionable low testosterone symptoms would feel a lot better on the testosterone and would want to maintain it. So okay. 
you know, not all of them, but some of them. Right. I, I probably can't resist saying something about testosterone pellets um, because sure. that's a huge industry. Um, a lot of these clinics are run by non-medical people. They have a medical person who administers the pellets. They're absolutely a formula. They check a blood level. And, and the blood levels that the patients get after putting these pellets in are extremely high. Um, I saw a number of women who got the pellets and they feel great. Oh my God, they have energy. They have, you know, they're assertive. They, they feel really great. But over time, they, they can, some of them get male uh, pattern hair loss uh, or excess body hair. I've seen some of them get clitoromegaly. And these blood levels were in the, uh, the lower third of the male range for a lot of these patients, especially even three months after the pellet when they were due for another one. Uh-huh. So I think there's a lot of overdosing out there with pellets. You can do it right, but a lot of people are not doing right. it right. <laughs> right. So and I'm y- very leery of the pellets. Also, once they're in, you can't take them out. You're stuck right. with them. Okay. Yeah, wow, so, yeah, that's... So topical is much more adjustable, and you can quit on a dime if you need. Got it. Okay, yeah. that is that is good to know. Um, one more question on the topic is, you know, what are some other forms of uh, hormone therapy? You kind of alluded to it earlier with the younger patients. Let's say you have somebody in their 20s or 30s, and their cycle is very short or maybe irregular mm-hmm. or very long or in some way, um, uh, having dysmenorrhea or anything like that? Are you giving hormone adjustments in in a patient yeah. like that? Or what are you thinking when you have well, somebody with a cycle that is shortening over time, let's just say? Okay. So shortening over time, um, it's you may have some luck with just prescribing cyclic micronized progesterone. Let's say somebody was in every 28-day period and now they're having them every 21 days. Mm-hmm. If you happen to start at day 14 and take the progesterone for 10 to 14 days, you may be able to lengthen that interval. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard It's hard to completely overdrive cycles with the bioidentical hormones. They're just not strong enough. That's where birth control pills come in. Okay. So I sometimes would default to that depending on how urgent it was to, to control the bleeding or what the reason was we were trying to control it. Yeah. Um, if there's excessive bleeding or just irregular bleeding, somebody who's oligoovulatory, like maybe a PCOS kind of scenario, birth control pills are great for that because they reduce, actually they increase the SHBG and reduce the androgen production. So you, you get rid of a lot of the androgen side mm. effects of the PCOS and you regulate periods so they feel more normal. Is that um, because the SHBG binds the androgen? Yes, it binds the testosterone that they're making. But also, when you give a birth control pill, the testosterone production goes down some as well. So you, you kind of get it from two, two angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that's, you know, synthetic hormones have their place, and that's a good place for them, whether it's contraception or it's cycle control in younger women. Mm-hmm. The hormone-releasing IUDs are also great for younger women who are having just irregular menses and don't want to take something orally and a synthetic estrogen. They have the synthetic progestin in them, but it's such a tiny amount. It, it doesn't create much in the way of systemic effects, and most people tolerate them real well. And then they, they make the periods really light. Okay. Okay, wow. So much good information on hormone therapy. Um, let's talk a little about LGBTQ health. And uh, forgive me if I uh, use any uh, terminology that's not the proper terminology, but I want to give you a chance to talk about your handbook for specifically for um, patients and PCPs. Is that right? Or kind of just an all-purpose handbook about 
um, sexual health and so many topics actually. Yeah, actually, I've, I've just finished or we're about to about to finish up with co-writing a handbook called Intro to Sex Ed for Primary Care Providers. So it could be for for docs, uh, PAs, NPs, anybody who's kind of on the front lines, and. Um, Sexual health became quite a passion of mine in the later years of my practice and continues to be in my kind of encore post-retirement practice. And um, we wanted to just give a lot of information to primary care providers that that they sadly probably don't get in medical training. Right. I know I got, I think I had one lecture. I think right now the med students at, at CU Med School are getting two hours of lecture on human sexuality. So it's it's pretty inadequate. Yeah. Um, and you've had a look at the table of contents, I understand. So. Well, I have it pulled up here. I, I got to skim it a little bit. I'm just like kind of going through, um, picking out some pages because it's, it's pretty uh, substantial. Uh, something almost 200 pages worth of, of good information. And so yeah. I uh, didn't have a chance to read it all. Right. But. Um, but I think that just the way it's set up is actually really user-friendly and very, um, basic. It's not intimidating in that way. And I felt that it was very easy to read. Um, and so I, I, uh, I want to get the word out. Yeah, that's good. Appreciate it. It's, um, our publisher is an organization called Unhushed. So the word hushed with the UN in front of them, so unhushed.org. And, uh, they've, my co-author has put out a couple of other handbooks of this kind for different medical providers, um, and it's available in a digital form as well. <clears throat> and it is, uh, I think, 158 pages, but the, the first 70 are some kind of text just on different subjects within sexuality, and then the rest of it is handouts that you can use with patients, and each one comes with a guide as to how you could use the handout. Um, and we cover some, not just contraception and sexually transmitted disease, but um, gender identity, um, consent and relationships and dating, um, communication styles, intimate partner violence, um, what happens in pregnancy, um, that would co- cover, you know, what's BDSM and why should you care and what's kink and why, and, and a lot of things that, mm-hmm. again, I didn't learn about until a whole lot later uh, in practice, but it would have been good to have that vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what, what was the inspiration for writing this? It seems like quite, uh, quite a um, substantial piece of work. I was approached by my co-author after she attended a uh, seminar that I did for ASECT, which is the AASECT. It's the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So sex therapists learn a lot about their therapists. So they, they start you know, with therapy, and they might have a, you know, an LCSW or an MSW or a PhD, uh, but they don't get a lot of the medical piece of the sexual issues they may be talking to patients about. So mm-hmm. I've given a number of presentations now to various groups of sex therapists and educators, and uh, she was a participant and, and asked me if I'd be interested in co-writing. Yeah, very cool. So what was, you You were kind of the uh, the medical, yeah. um, um, I don't know. Voice. What, voice. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, right. Um, in this uh, writing. So what kinds of things did you contribute to this you know what kind of, how, in what way was your voice a, a part of this well um there there's some medical pieces that uh, got expanded like uh there's a section on abortion and what it is and what it involves and what it doesn't involve mm-hmm. and so i expanded that section quite a bit there's a section on pregnancy you know from fertilization through stages of pregnancy and postpartum and i contributed some there um Karen, my co-author, had already written quite a lot about uh, transgender, but I was able to add a bit of my experience to that, uh, about caring for transgender patients. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and uh, some of the anatomy. As a gynecologist, I noticed we had a male anatomy handout and a female anatomy handout, and, and with always with apologies for using those terms because those are sometimes problematic now. But uh, we didn't have a vulvar anatomy handout, and I said, you know, there's a lot of landmarks here we've got to get on the handout. So, <laughs> so that we added that one. Okay. Yeah, especially for people who are dealing with, let's say, vulvodynia, vaginismus, it can be real important to understand where everything is. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's uh, quick. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add about uh, the, about the, the handbook, handbook or, or to to discuss? Is it is it uh, going to be available sometime soon? Uh, we hope that it'll be available uh, by mid July of this oh, of this great. year of twenty twenty two, and it is available in digital format. I know not a lot of folks want a book on their shelves anymore, but it's um, as you say, you can, I think you can leave through it pretty well digitally as well. Yeah, um, and so how how do how does one uh, obtain? You book. would go on the website, unhushed.org. Okay. Yeah, and that it would be a display. To the, there's several things there. To cool. Well, this will come out about mid-July, so yeah. that'll be perfect. Okay. I'll, I'll hit it at the, the top of the show and uh, promote it there, too. All right. Um, a couple other topics that I wanted to talk about is um, the th- couple things that you just mentioned recently, which was uh, transgender medicine mm-hmm. and also uh, the sexual pain disorders. Do you have yeah. a... A preference on which to start with and then I'll hit transgender medicine briefly um, I did not at least to my knowledge ever see a transgender patient until the last few years of my practice when I began doing the hormone prescribing I think in primary care it might be more common to see a transgender patient mm-hmm. um, this community um, is tight and it's a lot of word of mouth and they um, help each other find providers that are friendly yeah uh, and if you can get that reputation you might might see more trans folks. There's a huge need for primary care with transgender folk because just being transgender is is a an obstacle often to um, to having a a smooth sailing kind of a life. I mean, there, there are often big family conflicts. Uh, there are often uh, social and work kinds of conflicts. Uh, often, my transgender patients uh, were. Not not in really high-paying jobs, didn't have great health insurance, had had some unpleasant encounters with the healthcare system, maybe didn't come in as often as they should for self-care, just for general stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, they were coming to me for the hormone uh, piece, the hormone prescribing piece. And uh, if you wanted to get into that piece, um, WPATH, W-P-A-T-H, mm-hmm. is a good resource. That's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And they've been around for quite a while. I'm write they that have down. national inter- and international conferences, uh, so they have some guidelines on hormone prescribing. Uh, the endocrine societies have guidelines, and uh, there is a transgender center for excellence at UCSF, um, which you can go onto, you know, search out online. They have all kinds of protocols for primary care for transgender patients. Oh wow! Nice. Uh, and if you happen to be in Denver, Denver Health is developing its own transgender center for excellence, and the people running that are are really good people. So. Um, that's a great resource as well. They have a clinic there and um, can can see folks. So, so that's a good resource. Cool. What is that called again? The so at Denver Health Medical Center here in Denver, mm-hmm. um, there is a transgender center for excellence that they're that they're growing and expanding. And I think it's just called the Transgender Health Clinic. But oh, okay, yeah, cool. We, we would search that. Yeah, yeah. I just wrote it down. Um, awesome. So, uh, so you started to see. A number of these patients towards the end of your practicing career is that right? Yeah, that's right. I became aware that there was a need for 
there was a long waiting list for the few prescri- uh, few providers who prescribe transgender hormone therapy in Denver, mm-hmm. and so I kind of apprenticed myself to one of them for a time, and and as well as using all these other resources and uh, and got a little training in in how to proceed. And then um, when someone would call that provider, you know, she would say, "Well, you know, it's two month wait for me, but Doctor Fry can see you, you know, in three weeks." So then um, I began to build a little bit of a practice that way. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you said you got a little bit of an education um, from a mentor. Yeah. Um, can you give us some of the oh. kind of quick bullet points of the things that you learned or kind of just the, the quick takeaway points of the do's, maybe the don'ts of how to approach this type of medicine? Right. And I, I won't get into the technicalities of the hormones, but mainly the do's are, you know, do educate yourself first because it's it's a constant burden on trans folks to have to educate the world around them about who they are and what they are. Yeah. Um, and I learned that, you know, a trans woman is someone who identifies as a femme or a female, but uh, was assigned male at birth. And a you know, trans man is someone who identifies as male. Um, and I learned about terms like top surgery and bottom surgery. And, um, but I also learned that that's stuff that you don't need to know. If you don't need to know it, don't ask about it. It's personal, <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, and, uh, they, mainly wanted to, you know, be there and let's talk about the hormones. Um, and I'll let you know if there's anything else I need. Uh, I did have the occasional, um, opportunity to do a pap smear on a trans man. And in, in one case it was very good. We did because he had never had one and he turned out to have pretty advanced uh, dysplasia mm-hmm. and, uh, got him referred for a surgical treatment of that. So, uh, but yeah, don't don't expect them to educate you. Do you know be absolutely uh, non-judgmental and and welcoming and um, you know be as normal as you can because they're just there to be another normal patient if possible. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. And so when it comes to the actual replacing hormones or or giving hormone therapy, gender affirming therapy, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how does that work? How do you um, Start approaching that when you have somebody coming in requesting uh, at least a consult on the on the right. topic. So if they were not just into continue therapy that they'd had, let's say in another state or something, mm-hmm. uh, then if they were just starting, uh, WPATH recommends that they have a psychiatric provider um, of some kind just verify that they um, they have a good support system that they're emotionally kind of ready to take this step because it's a it's a pretty big transition. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I did, especially early on, I did request that documentation, and they were usually okay with providing that. Okay. Uh, and then for a trans man, uh, you generally just start prescribing testosterone, and the testosterone um, by itself pretty effectively suppresses estrogen. Um, once you get male therapeutic male levels of testosterone, and that's usually done by injection, uh, then ovulation stops, uh, menses stop, and, and you start to see uh, breast tissue uh, get, uh, sometimes will get a little less prominent. Um, you see facial hair and, um, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then for a trans woman, uh, you need to suppress testosterone, and spironolactone was the most common way to do that, although you can use finasteride in some others. Mm-hmm. So you have to suppress the testosterone, and then you prescribe estrogen. And again, um, for because of the the amount of estrogen required, it was fairly popular to do estrogen shots. One of the few times I would do estrogen injections, mm-hmm. uh, often with the del estrogen. 
And then you do want to monitor levels in these cases because you don't want to be getting super physiologic levels. When you're treating a trans man with testosterone, you also have to monitor hematocrit because uh, polycythemia is a, is a risk. Oh, and, okay. Uh, you know, clotting is a, is a big, big worry at the higher doses that you sometimes need. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the basics of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there any troubleshooting that goes on? I, I know you mentioned earlier that um, giving a female um, testosterone for, um, you know, kind of perimenopause, uh, it takes a, about three months to kick in or start to notice the effects. And is that's because we're giving female doses. But um, at, and, and this is how I became aware that the people using pellets were really replacing way out of the female range because mm -hmm. with trans, they would be in the range I'd be aiming for with my trans men. So um, we would, you're giving much more testosterone. It has a, uh, it has a quicker effect. Although it still takes time, I think, for the the synapses in the in the brain and the brain chemistry to do their magic when you when you give them yeah, the testosterone. Right. Um, but they're usually a little quicker results with those higher doses. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. What other um, issues do you see come up uh, when? Uh, you know, prescribing hormones long-term for for this uh, type of situation? Well, I think accessibility was always an issue. Like I say, a lot of my trans patients um, were, were kind of limited on income, limited on health care coverage, and so it was sometimes a challenge for them to, to get to see me, to, uh, to pay for their medications, to pay for the blood tests that I required them to have, you know, a couple times a year at least to make sure that we were... We're not, not causing polycythemia and that we were still in a good therapeutic range and so on. Mm -hmm. um, did you so find that you lacked, uh, patients lacked follow-up and that it was they hard sometimes to, did. Yeah, they, they would they, take their medication for X amount of months and then yeah. uh, lose them to follow-up? I would make the, the refills contingent on a certain amount of follow-up and I was, you know, I tried to be as flexible as I could, but, you know, they understood from the start that it, I couldn't prescribe past a certain point if they weren't coming in. Right. And so I, you know, I probably know, a quarter of the time or a fifth of the time that would become an issue at least for a little while. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you have, uh, kind of pearls or, you know, uh, any, no, any, mean, uh, words of wisdom about that? Cause I know just, you mentioned earlier that medical school doesn't really give you a whole lot of education on, you mentioned about you know, sexuality and, and human sexuality, sexual mm -hmm. pain, right. that sort of stuff. You hear all the terms the big you know terms that come up but it's not something that we really necessarily get out of medical school and know exactly how to deal with right. uh that or uh gender affirming care or um the menopausal hormone replacement so these are all yeah. things that are where you I, can't personally i'm on the edge of my seat saying right. give me give me all the info yeah. you can <laughs> Well, you can't be a specialist in everything, and you can't. Most of us in practice in primary care or elsewhere find the things that really speak to us. And we, um, I think, the biggest shock to me when I got out of residency and started my practice um, was, oh, there's there's still more stuff I have to learn. In fact, you know, really, all you get is is the basics. Mm -hmm. You, you, uh, you know, you're drinking from that fire hose all throughout medical school and residency, and you think enough. I am so done learning, <laughs> and but you're not done. You're never done, and so. You know, for sexual pain syndromes, I've, I found a, the pain clinic at the University of Colorado uh, over at Anschutz and a guy named John Slocum, who's 
probably retired for real by now. I kept threatening, but um, <laughs> who'd been doing this for a long time. And I called him up and said, can I come do a little sub-internship in your office? And, you know, my day off, can I come in and see what you do and shadow you? And, and um, I kind of did the same thing when I wanted to learn about transgender hormone therapy. There may or may not be established programs out there. There are resources, and you should you know, read and use them. But I, I really think it's good to see what people are doing um, and then you can decide if that's something you want to do. And if not, the, all the things that you don't want to do, it's a big part of practice is building a referral network and trying to figure out, I mean, it's, it, it's so constrained by insurance anymore and insurance is constantly changing. But as far as OB and, and GYN topic referrals go, I mean, in, in primary care, you need to find a few specialists that you really like and trust and, and be in communication with them. And if, if the world is ideal, then you might even have their cell phone number or something where you can shoot them a quick text or, or send them a quick email and say, look, I've got a patient with XYZ. Is this okay or does she need to come see you or does he need to come see you? Mm -hmm. uh, because that saves your patient so much trouble if you can do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, well, that is uh, good words of wisdom. Can we hit one more topic? We can. Uh, before we <laughs> land the plane. Let's uh, talk about something that you've mentioned a number of times today, sexual pain disorders. You, you talked about some terms, vulvodynia, dyspareunia. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about how your um, career looked in terms of uh, treating and, and seeing patients with uh, those issues. Uh, well, as I said, you know, in the early years of practice, typical pretty busy practice with lots of OB um, you don't get a lot of time with patients, and there were a few patients that came and went that I felt really badly that I didn't know what to do for them, mm -hmm. um, and I tried referring them on. But um, so dyspareunia, you know, painful penetration, whether it's with a penis, with a toy, a finger, whatever, mm -hmm. um, that would that was one problem, uh, and sometimes that was due to vaginismus, which is involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscles around the penetrating you know, object. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then vulvodynia was another one where patients would just complain of this um, burning vulvar dysesthesia. And it, some of them said, you know, it feels like there's a lit match right at, right up my labia. And, th and this never goes away. And it's a miserable thing to have. And there's at the time when I was seeing these patients back in the 90s and, and beyond, there wasn't a lot of literature on it. Um, people were predictably one route was to you know cut most of the vulva out and see if it got better and sometimes that worked sometimes it didn't hmm. there's never really a big proponent of surgery other than a last resort right um but it turns out there there is an international pelvic pain society and they have uh, some pretty wonderful conferences um there's also the international society for the study of vulvar disease issvd and they have some good conferences and and speakers um so Again, I went to the pelvic pain clinic, um, which incorporate, incorporated the vulvar pain syndromes too, and and just learned a bit about it. And in general, someone with, let's say, vulvodynia, who's had this burning vulvar pain, they see an average of ten or twelve doctors before it's correctly diagnosed. Um, they get blown off a lot. They they get told um, they they get diagnosed a lot with yeast or BV or different things that people are trying to treat, and and that's not it. Um, Sometimes what they have is an, a very tight pelvic floor that's compressing uh, pudendal nerves, and that's causing referred pain to the vulva. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's been a chemical insult, 
Uh, one woman I saw had five fluorouracil, five FU, was something that used to be painted on the cervix of the vaginal walls for mm. dysplasia, mm-hmm. and it was it was a cream that could leak down and and cause a chemical burn on the vulva. So one woman, it started with that, and, and it never went away. It's a kind of chronic pain syndrome. So the treatment is is multi pronged, and often they need pelvic floor physical therapy. They may need a topical agent uh, on the vulva. They may need a a chronic pain medication, a neuromodulator kind of a medicine, and um, they may need a sex therapist because it wrecks their lives and they need to talk about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you talked about this multidisciplinary and multi-specialty uh, team approach. How mm-hmm. much are the uh, providers in this team communicating with each other and working with each other um, on any given patient? Um, well, there are a couple clinics in town for women's pelvic pain syndromes. There, again, there's one at Denver Health uh, called the Women's Pelvic Health Clinic, and then there's one called the Pelvic Solutions Center uh, up at St. Luke's, uh, on Dr. Nell Gehrig's practice. Uh, and the network I was in was very informal, and uh, we just we found each other over the years, and we did a lot of uh, referring back and forth to each other. And uh, a lot of us always wish we could be in more of a formal clinic situation. There are a couple clinics around the country that do that. Uh, there's one one on each coast that I know of, one in New York and one in San Diego that are basically uh, sexual health clinics or um, sexual disorder clinics. Andrew Goldstein on the West Coast and um, uh, there's something called Maze Health on the East Coast that's mostly women's, or mostly men's. Uh, but And there's another one I'll think of in a minute. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but they're, they're out there. So for me, it was very informal. Um, we just uh, kind of all knew each other and, and tried to refer patients around. Okay. Um, yeah. So how, I guess, what is your insight on why these are such difficult things to treat? Because there is no obvious, you know, pill therapy thing you can do that, that fixes it right away. Mm-hmm. Like, And that's that's the place where Western medicine really fails us is chronic conditions and particularly chronic pain. We don't really have a lot of good ideas to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where a lot of the alternative uh, or integrative medicine modalities sometimes can shine because sometimes they can do a little better job. Um, I don't know that I ever referred anyone for acupuncture for these particular syndromes, but sometimes people who had more general pelvic pain would benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Um, You talked about lifestyle factors earlier, just de-stressing as much as possible. De-stressing helps. Um, Getting good sleep. You mentioned exercise. These things are... Almost always uh, indicated. Helpful. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. just good basic self-care, right? Uh, But once you get into that chronic pain feedback loop, you really need to to get at the the pain portion of it. Right. And I'm glad to see that that pain pain medicine has become more of a specialty. A lot of the folks doing pain medicine are are really just offices where they do injections all day long, but the the, the ones who are not going that route, who are are trying to study the different um, neuromodulator medicines and, and... PT aspects and, and lifestyle modification, I think, are, are doing a really great service. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. there any either medication or group of medications that you found would to be particularly helpful in this type of uh, issue? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know that I could pick out just one, but... Um, if you just have a, a, a few or, you know, if you miss one, then I won't hold it against yeah, you. Yeah, right. Um and I, I just went right out of my head here, the one that I most commonly prescribed. So That's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking neuromodulators. Something, so something it, like gabapentin. 
yes, gabapentin was definitely one. Mm -hmm. um, but there's the gabapentin is so sedating. Right. This is this is one place that uh, compounding pharmacies can also help because they could often we often got very good relief with a topical remedy that combined some xylocaine or or one of the topical numbing agents with oh. gabapentin with maybe baclofen, uh, which is mm -hmm. a bit of a, so you could get both relaxation of the underlying muscles and some numbing and some, and address some of the chronic pain. So this was in treating vulvodynia. And that was another time when I really used the compounding pharmacies. And there are a few around the Denver area that are uh, particularly good at this. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, yeah, that was one route that usually gave some relief. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, with compounding pharmacies, I, I always, I never really heard about them much, except mm -hmm. for in the in the OB and hormonal world, right. in, in the GYN world, uh, it seems to be used a lot. It's a big business, big book of business for them. Oh, and really? They do a lot of promoting of, they, they do, you know, compounded bioidentical hormones, and, and it's an, there's nothing wrong with it, you know, it's an appealing concept, let's let's uh, completely personalize your hormone replacement regimen. And very often these are compounded creams that you rub in. And I've used them for patients that didn't tolerate patches or didn't want patches uh, or didn't want to take pills or whatever else it might be. Um, but I, I just found the, the results to be less consistent, less dependable um, with the hormone replacement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, thank God they're there for the, for the uh, pain patients because they're really helpful there. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, you mentioned uh, the importance of the multidisciplinary, multi-specialty team. So that yeah. that's part of it is the pharma pharmaceutical yeah, actually, aspect. Yeah, include the rem as well. For sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me for about an hour here. I, yeah. I thought it was a, a really important conversation for me to have with you about these topics because I, you know, like you said, we don't get that much information on yeah. them, and it's you know creeping its way more into the uh, popular culture and mm -hmm. the just general understanding in the world, but it's still slow and, yeah. and uh, it's uh, good to have a little anchor point here. Yeah. Good. Well, I, you know, primary care is, is the linchpin of everything. It's wonderful. And, and uh, you know, I'm so glad that there are still people that want to go into primary care and that are out there doing the, doing the good work. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's fun yeah. and exciting when you get to, like you said, keep learning new things, even though <laughs> you, yeah. you said it doesn't really, uh, you know, you just got done with the fire hose twice, and right. then now you are got more fire like hose to drink from. a little break for a year or so, yeah. and then, you know, start start working again, right? Right. And you can find, find what you like and, and, uh, and learn more about that. Cool. Well, thanks yeah. so much. Okay. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hope everybody enjoyed that talk with Dr. Fry. She was great, and I uh, would love to talk to her again, maybe get more in-depth about some of these topics or maybe some other topics that are relevant to uh, her world and my world and hopefully many of the listeners' worlds as well because you know some of the stuff we talked about today, stuff that definitely comes up in the primary care setting it's not necessarily every day that it does, but it's definitely a, a pretty robust topic for uh, all primary care providers, things that they need to know. So with that, we will play us out with uh, our music outro, and I will uh, hope to 
talk to you all again on the next episode. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Bye. That just add a little pizzazz. You know what I'm saying? was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be Learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now and showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know The universe was my universe but I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden Plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain As I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder Am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said, hey baby Instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin Let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch Don't sprint Take it slow, protect your soul Travel long and far, but make sure to come home Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going And gives you the power and the freedom to grow Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first It was simpler when the uterus was so baby Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. The universe was my universe. All conversations and information exchanges contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of the medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.